the reason why I became an equine massage therapist might surprise you. I was pulled into this career for an all too familiar reason. My horse, Wesley, and I were struggling with our partnership. He was my best friend, but I felt like we just couldn't get on the same page no matter how much I wanted to. He was cranky to groom, tough to ride, and was getting eliminated at every competition we went to, and I felt hopeless. I searched high and low for an answer to what was bothering him with numerous vets and professionals weighing in. Some told me it was a training issue and recommended a new bit, supplement, or saddle. Some told me he was broken and I should retire him. One vet even told me to put him down. And then I figured out how to massage him. It was like a veil was lifted. He was finally comfortable enough in his body to work how I always knew that he could. As I continued to work on him and he became more comfortable, our relationship improved dramatically. I could tell that he understood I wanted to help him and not hurt him, and that I saw him as a partner, not a vehicle in which to reach my goals. I was Wesley's advocate and his massage therapist, and he rewarded me with achieving goals I never could have dreamed of. Wesley, my little off-track thoroughbred that everyone told me to give up on, took me up to fourth-level dressage and helped me earn my USDF bronze medal in the first two scores towards my silver medal. Wesley was never perfect. Massage wasn't a magic wand that made him perform perfectly every single ride, nor did it totally fix the physical challenges he faced after years on the track. But it did give me my horse back. It gave me the fighting chance to set and meet goals I had always dreamed of, and it changed both our lives for the better. I've been in your shoes. I've seen my horse deteriorate in performance when he should be improving, develop behavioral issues, buck, bolt, and bronc, struggle to maintain the canter and other relatively easy tasks, travel very crooked, and become one-sided in his body. And that is why I created Equine Massage 101. I wanted to teach horse owners how to take their horse's performance into their own hands. I want to help myself five years ago when I loved my horse, but his issues were making us both miserable. It's a common misconception that you have to spend hours and thousands of dollars of education to be able to help your horse. You don't have to be a professional to have incredible results. If anyone has ever told you that you aren't good or knowledgeable enough to advocate for your horse and help them improve, that's a load of BS. Horse owners should be encouraged to help their horses and not discouraged from playing a role in their care. I am so grateful to be able to offer this online education to you all. Learn more about Equine Massage 101 and sign up to help your horse today. I have a special coupon code for you. It's for 10% off and it's no bucks 10. Again, it's for 10% off of my signature online course and it's no bucks 10 no spaces. You can go to my website, freelyforwardbodywork.com or visit the show notes where the course will be linked to sign up today. Help your horse become the best they can be.
Welcome back to No Bucks Given, the equestrian podcast where we have honest conversations about the horse industry. Whether it's discussing the common myths in the horse world and the science or lack thereof behind them or a difficult social topic in both sides of it, we get to the bottom of what matters most, how to best care and advocate for our horses. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest, a longtime hero of mine and a leader in equine biomechanics in the U.S., Dr. Hillary Clayton. Hillary, thank you so much for being here. It's lovely to be here. I hope we're going to have an interesting conversation. I'm really excited to dive into our topic. So we're going to talk about uh, how the equine lower limb functions um, in locomotion and uh, how the hoof functions and then how both of those structures interact with various kinds of footing and how we can pick out different kinds of footing and different ways of working on horses uh, to put them at their best advantage. Right, and hopefully to keep them sound at the same time. Most importantly, (laughs) right? (laughs) So I would love to start with uh, uh, adding a layer of knowledge on how the horse's uh, limb functions biomechanically. Yes, I always like to start by talking about the way that the limbs move during every stride that the horse takes. So during each stride, Every limb has a phase when it's in contact with the ground, and that's when it develops the forces for locomotion. And then it has a phase when it's swinging through the air in preparation for the next stance phase. Now, when we watch our horses move, we tend to look at how the legs are moving through the air. And of course, that's very important for the aesthetics of the movement. But very, very few problems and injuries occur during that swing phase. The phase that's much more important to me as a a veterinarian and as a biomechanics researcher is the stance phase when the hoof is on the ground and interacting with the ground. The stance phase. So even though I I totally agree with you, me, especially as a dressage rider, I think I'm very interested in how the horse looks as their leg is moving through the air. You know, I'm thinking about flicking the toes or that really nice front end or hind end action. But it makes a lot of sense what you're saying that it's biomechanically really important to focus on when the leg is on the ground and actually loading the weight of the horse and absorbing the energy of their movement. Right. And things that you can start to train your eye to look for um, would be, is the leg straight when it's on the ground? Or is, for example, the uh, fetlock sinking towards the inside, which might indicate that the horse's leg is not conformed straight, or it might be a problem with the way the hoof is trimmed. You can also look at things like, does the horse have wobbly hocks? So when the hind leg is on the ground, do the hocks sort of do this, um, which is a sign that the forces generated by the hind hoof are not getting transmitted straight up the hind limb through the pelvis to the rest of the horse's body. So we like to see the forces being transmitted straight through the limb to the rest of the horse. And do you find that oftentimes the an issue with the limb function is it it comes from an issue within the hoof or do you think that it's not always that simple it can sometimes be the hoof it can sometimes be something else yes it's not always that simple i mean yeah. clearly the hoof is the um is what di- directly interfaces with the ground but any conformational 
aberration higher up the leg also affects how the hoof contacts the ground and generates forces. Absolutely. All right. So we're getting, we just covered stance versus swing phase. Mm-hmm. Are there any structures that you want to touch on that you really tend to look at that are really important to the way the leg functions? Well, again, starting with the hoof. Okay. During the stance phase, the hoof is supposed to spread just a little bit. Right. And that's difficult for the hoof when the horse has shoes on, um, and especially if the nails are a little too far back. So that's one of the reasons why I prefer barefoot horses, you know, because the hoof can function in a more natural way, but it's not possible for every horse to go barefoot. I agree. I, I've i always thought, you know, I don't know nearly as much about equine podiatry as I would like mm-hmm. to. Um, but my understanding of what I've learned so far is that barefoot is absolutely what we should all strive for. But for some horses, genetically or even environmentally over time, it might just not quite be possible. Yeah. Um, but it is so important. Like you said, I think a lot of people don't realize, um, and this is actually true in humans as well as horses. I'm a human massage therapist as oh, well. Okay. Um, so I massage horses and humans. And so I'm really interested in comparing the two a bit, but there's actually a ton of research coming out now about how um, runners who run without shoes are actually running a lot faster because their foot can naturally expand and contract. And it's a lot better for all the structures within their foot. So I thought that that was really interesting. You know, that research has come out with humans. Um, I'm really interested if we'll eventually do research like that in horses. Yes. And people actually have been doing research like that. Dr. Bob Bowker at Michigan State University was a colleague of mine for many years. And he's done a lot of really original, interesting research about what happens when the hoof is on the ground. So when the hoof expands, that is what pushes the blood through the vessels in the hoof. Absolutely. And so when the shoe is on, the circulation is impaired. Um, But what else happens? Well, also, most shoes, the material that they're made of, um, amplifies the impact forces. Because it's metal. Yes. So basically, the the concussion is increased. Correct. Okay. So for some people have considered doing things like plastic shoes. Do you Mm -hmm. have any thoughts on that? Um, You have to look at every type individually. And also in relation to the horse's occupation and the type of surface he's working on. So, you know, the horses at Disney World, they have rubberized shoes. Okay. So their shoes don't wear out too fast because they spend all day, you know, working on blacktop. But it's also a lot quieter. Oh, huh. But when you have a rubberized shoe, the foot can't slide across the ground. There's a high coefficient of friction. So... You have to take that into account too, but because these horses are only walking, that sort of ameliorates the effect of the frictional forces. Absolutely. Whereas a upper level event horse, a rubber shoe would probably not be very appropriate no. because they wouldn't be able to slide after the jump. So before I would like to get into that friction concept with you more, mm-hmm. um, but before we do, are there any other structures in the leg that you'd really like to 
uh, cover before we get more into uh, the biomechanics? Oh, there's this whole lot of structures in the leg. Well, yeah, because they're kind of all important. It's not really (laughs) a super fair question. Um, Very very important are the tendons, um, deep and superficial flexor tendons, and the suspensory ligament, which are supporting the fetlock. So when the leg is bearing weight, the fetlock sinks towards the ground, and those three structures pass around behind the fetlock joint like a great big hammock. So the fetlock sort of sinks into these tendons and stretches them. Now, when these tendons stretch, especially the superficial flexor and the suspensory, are acting like strips of elastic. So they get stretched as the fetlock goes down, and then as the horse's body passes on over the leg, the fetlock rises up and the ligament and tendons bounce back and help to reduce the amount of muscle energy that the horses need for locomotion. So that's a really important mechanism. And is that called the suspensory apparatus? Yes. Awesome. And that's in every leg around the, uh, around the fetlock? Yes. Okay. So then there's another special thing about the elastic tendons, and that is that if the horse overuses them, then they tend to accumulate injury. So normally um, tendons will get some um, minor microscopic injury during exercise, but what the body does is repair that within 24 to 48 hours. But these elastic tendons don't repair quite as well and they tend to accumulate some injury so that by the time the horse is a teenager, those structures are not as strong and effective as they were when the horse was younger. So take home message from that is don't overwork your older horses that already know their job and you don't have to drill them day after day. Absolutely. Do you think that there's a certain age where they start accumulating the damage more than they're able to repair it? Or does it, is it really independent of the horse? I think it depends on, it's not simply the age, it's the workload okay. that the horse has accumulated over its right. lifetime. So it's probable that if a horse doesn't really start working till he's six or seven years old, then he has less damage at that age and it's going to accumulate more slowly absolutely can i get your thought on something it's a little bit and we we can cut it out if you don't want to so the research on young thoroughbreds that showed that if they were two years old if they started at two years Mm -hmm. old they were less likely to have a catastrophic injury at three years old um that made it seem like starting them young is actually good and protective to them. But what you're saying is that might not be the case. It might be that that might be shortening their career span because that research was looking at a very short career span in the thoroughbreds. And you're thinking about the performance horse that has a much longer career span. Um, So you would say possibly for, sorry, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm just comparing and contrasting that with you. And as always, it's way more complicated. (laughs) So if you look at the tissues that make up the locomotor system, we have bone, muscle, ligament, tendon, which will, you know, bulk in together, and the articular cartilage, 
which lines the joints, lines the bones um, in the joints, and that's where arthritis begins. Now, each of those tissues matures with a different time frame and in response to different types of stimulus. So the articular cartilage and the ligaments and tendons do almost all of their development and strengthening in the first two years of life. Okay. So if you have a foal, maybe it has an injury and it can't go out on, on pasture, it can't go out and run for the first three months of its life, then that's a problem. Right, when that you foal is probably never going to be quite as strong. forever, yeah. Okay. So really important that these little babies get to go out and run um, different gradients, different types of footing to develop their proprioception. And interestingly, it's been shown that the very best environment for these young horses is to go out with other babies. To play. To play. Yeah. And when they play, you know, they do all these weird things. They stand on their hind legs. They leap in the air. Cartilage likes to see... Um, kind of a higher impact loading. And I think that is what's helping to develop the cartilage. In the racehorses? In any horse. Oh, in any Any horse. horse. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, maybe even more important in the sport horses that are not going to start work probably till they're four-year-olds. So with the racehorses that are starting early at about 18 months of age, they are, I mean, not deliberately, they do it because... They want to race them as two and right. three-year-olds. <laughs> but they're also a little bit tapping into that window of opportunity to strengthen some of those tissues um, before the window closes. Absolutely. But um, it's safe to wonder if that has ramifications farther down yeah. the line. Yeah. Right. There and hasn't... Oh, sorry. Um, something I was just going to say is that there have been studies looking at thoroughbreds that start racing as two-year-olds mm-hmm. and comparing those with horses that don't race until they're three-year-olds and the three-year-olds get the same set of problems it's just delayed by a year okay so that's where the idea really you know is coming from that it may not be the worst thing in the world to race two-year-olds but then the point that you just make I think is very valid that what are those horses going to do after their racing career is finished yeah, um, just for my own personal reasons, you know, my I just one more question, then we'll get back to uh, <laughs> equine uh, lower limb locomotion. My theory um, that I don't think there's any research on to back up either way is that working them younger um, taps into Wolf's Law and is really good for their is good for their lower limbs to strengthen all those structures. But maybe mm-hmm. because so basically it's good for the appendicular skeleton, but maybe it isn't as good for the axial skeleton, axial skeleton, which isn't as developed. So it might um, lead to possibly uh, increased degeneration of those structures. Do you feel like that has validity or not? I think that's an interesting question. And I, I'm trying to think of any research that would go with that and I can't. Yeah, no, I, I looked. I was because I yeah. was curious, you know, I, I dove into for another podcast, I dove into um, that thoroughbred research with a vet. Um, and that was my hypothesis because, you know, it really just doesn't seem quite right that starting horses at two years old would have no negative long term effects. Um, but that's what right now the research we said has 
generally says is that there isn't any research proving it has bad effects and there is research showing it has less breakdown injuries in racehorses, but there also isn't, no one has actually researched it. I think what, what the hole is in that whole thing is that right. they, they haven't followed them through. You know, they right. examine them as racehorses and then the research kind of stops. Yeah, I would love to see a longitudinal study yes. of, of racehorses or of performance horses. It'd be really interesting. But, you know, the problem with that is it gets very expensive to try and follow the horses and some of them drop out and some of them die. And right. Well, and I can't imagine controlling all the variables yeah. either. Yeah. All right. So back to structure. So we just touched on the equine suspensory apparatus. Um, are there any... As we're looking at footing and how the uh, limb and the uh, foot function, is, are, is there anything else you want to touch on before we move forward? Well, just to say that I did mention right at the beginning that the right. hoof is the actual interface with the ground. Okay. So the concussion meets the hoof first, and it's going to ascend through the bony column. So the coffin joint, the paston joint, the fetlock joint are the, the sort of first joints that get impacted by concussion. And at each joint, there's articular cartilage that's absorbing, dissipating some of the concussion. So it tends to decrease the further up you go up the limb. So you now keep in mind that the distal joints are usually the ones we see with arthritic changes. Absolutely. Okay, that makes sense. So basically every joint surface is absorbing some concussion, so there's yep. less concussion as it travels yeah. up the body because they're doing their job. Okay, that's it. <laughs> Perfect. So now um, when thinking about um, things that influence the way that biomechanics work, we talked about um, we talked about hoof function and good farrier work. Do you have any guidelines for people looking for good farrier work? Um, or is that too much of a rabbit hole to dive down today? Um, good farrier work. I mean, for me, the balance of the hoof is very important. And if you have any questions at all about how the coffin bone is balanced inside the hoof, then you should do balance radiographs that look at both the, the front to back to check that the coffin bone isn't lower behind than it is in front. Okay. And you also look side to side to see if the undersurface of the coffin bone is parallel to the ground. And you can't always judge that from the levelness of the coronary band. Okay. And horses who have a, a coffin bone that's not perfectly um, aligned with the outer hoof wall, then they have to be trimmed to their own foot. Okay. Not to some, you know standard ideal that we have in mind absolutely um so what i'm hearing is every horse is an individual and it is probably very helpful to have to regularly radiograph um to assess where the coffin bone is and make sure that the farrier rework is doing its best to support its proper location yeah and probably not every horse has to have that but just the ones that you're a little bit suspicious of the ones with, you know, twisting feet, that kind of thing. I think it's worth doing balance radiographs. I bought a horse recently who rope walked, trotted, 
Okay. Uh, terrible. And we did balance radiographs on him, and he came with front feet that were trimmed a full half inch higher on the outside of both front feet. Wow. Yes. So, you know, over a course of the last three or four months, we've been very gradually remedying that. And it's like magic. The horse moves straight now. But, <laughs> the, you know, the other side of that is you can't just fix it all at once because every time you make a little correction, then some of the ligaments are going to be more stretched when the horse I is see. moving. So, and, and you might expect them to be just a little bit off for a short while, but you know, walking exercise is good and just let the horse be your guide. Absolutely. Absolutely. And is there, um, is there any particular education or anything you look with farriers? Because I have noticed, um, you know, I'm in my area, I'm lucky. I have a lot of really good farriers near me with a lot of access to well-educated farriers, but I grew up in the Midwest. I'm in Iowa and I didn't have a lot of access to people like that. So, um, for people looking to both educate themselves on, um, horses feet and also looking to work with a very well-educated farrier do you have any advice for them it's pretty hard here because we don't have um, requirements for farrier registration yeah in a lot of countries you can't be a farrier without an extensive education and apprenticeship so you know i think word of mouth is very good but you know the people you're talking to are they knowledgeable enough to really know who are the good farriers. So I I think it is very difficult. And like you say, in certain areas of the country, there are very few people doing it. Yeah. Yeah, we definitely Oh, and one more thing. Um, If your horse is barefoot, then you usually need a different person than would be shoeing a horse. So there, I I have been wondering, you know, the the barefoot, I've heard that. So how do they shoe them, or how do they trim them differently for barefoot versus well, shod? Yeah, if you look at a, a well-trimmed barefoot horse, the, the first thing probably that you'll notice is that the hoof is really quite small, mm. short, let's say. You don't have long heels. You want the heels and the frog to be well-developed and to actually, when the hoof is on the ground, it's stimulating the proprioceptors there and loading not just the wall, which is you know the key thing in a horse that's shot, it's just the wall that's loaded. You want to load as much of the undersurface or solar surface of the hoof as you can. So that whole undersurface becomes part of the weight-bearing apparatus. Okay. And um, you'll also see that the periphery of the wall will be usually rolled so that it's easier for the horse to break over in any direction. Absolutely. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. So now looking at um, how the leg functions, what are, what are good things we want to be seeing and what are bad things we want to be seeing when we're watching our horse in the stance phase? Well, we like to see the hoof contacting the ground pretty much equally on the medial and lateral side, so landing fairly flat in the medial lateral direction. They might land a little bit heel first, some of them a little bit toe first. We like to see a heel first landing because that um, loads the proprioceptors right away at the beginning of this stance phase. 
And then look at how the bones of the limb and the joints are stacked up over that hoof. Okay. And not all horses have absolutely straight conformation, but you should be able to see, for example, if the horse is towed out, is it just below the fetlock or does it start higher up at the, the knee? Um, and the goal is not to make the imperfectly conformed horse look perfect. The goal is to accommodate those imperfections. I like that. <laughs> I like that. That's a good take-home message. So now to get into footing. Um, you know, I am very interested to hear what you have to say. Um, me as a dressage rider, um, uh, fiber in our footing is very, very common. And it does seem like there's some discussion now um, basically asking if that fiber is leading to too much friction um, when the horse is interacting with its surface and potentially leading to damage. Um, and I'd really love to hear from you uh, what different kinds of footings you prefer or don't like and what rules of thumb you may have for people. A question that has no ending. Um, <laughs> so it's one of the things that's changed so much over the last 20-ish years. Used to be we all rode and showed when I was a kid on turf. And we didn't think anything of it. But then we got into the sand era. Um, and, and that improved life because turf is totally dependent on the weather and how much rain you have. Um, and with the sand, the rain actually often improves the way the sand performs. But then people started thinking about, you know, what could we do to improve the properties of sand? And first of all, it was wood chips and rubber, and now it's all these synthetics. And it seems like, you know, almost anything that's um, a waste product can be put into this <laughs> footing. <laughs> so <clears throat> the thing with the fibers is that it stabilizes the sand. Okay. So the sand doesn't shift about so much it lets the horse feel that his foot is firmly planted on the ground okay so it's good from that point of view but the problem comes when you get too much fiber because it then stabilizes the foot a bit too much and the foot can't move forward when it contacts the ground so normally as the hoof approaches the ground the whole body of the horse is moving forward and the leg is moving forward and it comes down with a, a downward and forward velocity and the first thing that happens when the hoof contacts the ground is that the downward motion is stopped so it stops moving downward but you've still got this forward velocity. Stopping the downward motion creates concussion. Stopping the forward movement creates concussion. So the more slowly you can decelerate the leg, the less concussion there is. Mm. So if it's a surface that allows the hoof to just sink in a little ways, that's good because it reduces the vertical concussion. And if it allows the foot to slide forwards a little bit, it reduces the um, longitudinal concussion. And the problem with a lot of our synthetic surfaces is that they don't allow that forward slide. And especially if you have a surface that's um, really well watered and no little cushion on top, 
then that stops it quite abruptly. Because it's so stuck. It's stuck. Okay. And then, now we talked about the first line of defense is the most distal joints. So you would expect to see more arthritis in the coffin joint, the past and the fetlock. Absolutely. So in your opinion, are a lot of the, is the standard amount of fiber in the footing that we're seeing? Because it all, to me, an uneducated eye, it looks all pretty similar, the amount we have. Mm, it's not pretty no. similar. Would you say that it seems like we're adding too much fiber to the footing or does it just really, again, depend? It depends on the type of fiber. It depends on who your um, contractor is that's working on the arena and it depends to a certain extent on the sport as well but we're you know, mostly focusing I think on the Olympic sports right yeah um, so I think you have to judge each surface individually and there is um, a, a pretty good surface tester the one that they use over at, um, global and the, the WEF oh what does that do oh well <laughs> it has a couple of rails that go down and they go down not um, vertically but at a slight angle to the ground like the footwood like the footwood yes ah, you're getting this <laughs> um, and what they do is put a model of a horse hoof okay. with a shoe and drop it from a certain height and it's weighted so it hits ah. the ground with the same force as the horse's okay. hoof would hit the ground. Okay. And in that, there are accelerometers which measure the deceleration. And they are three-dimensional, so they measure both the downwards and the forward deceleration. And they can compare different surfaces. Now, people always want to know what is the perfect surface. <laughs> you know, and my answer to that is there isn't really a perfect surface. The horse's leg can adapt within a certain range to, to different surfaces as long as it stays the same. So what horses hate is inconsistency and unpredictability. So if they're moving over a surface that suddenly it gets more uh, looser mm. and they can't see that, then that's really bad for the horse because he can't prepare his leg to be the correct stiffness for that looser part of the footing. So the horse's leg changes its stiffness, which means um, how, how much it's um, sort of, fixed if you like how elastic yeah. it is versus how unelastic it might be according to what it expects and what the horse expects is based on the last stride that he took so I if, see. if the footing is very consistent and it's same from stride to stride to stride the horse's musculoskeletal system will adapt the leg so that he can move very nicely over that ground and it's not that we have to have one perfect footing is that it stays within a certain range that helps the horse to move well and also at the same time doesn't increase the risk of injury. So you could you could make an argument that maybe it's a little bit less important exactly what's in your footing but more important that your arena is well groomed so that the arena throughout is pretty even so that there aren't really um 
deeper or more shallow patches yes. or less uh, watered patches as well. I think that right. that can yes, be an that's issue for people, yep. right? Because that can affect the grip. So yes, it does help to get your arena, you know, professionally reworked and re-leveled every so often. That's a good thing. And the other thing is the amount of water you add really changes the properties of the footing. Okay. So what we like to see is that the lower layers are more watered and you have a little cushion on the top that's allowing that gradual deceleration. So does it help to maybe instead of water every day, I mean, it depends a lot on the environment, but maybe to water less frequently, but water more when you do so that you have that lower level that's more hydrated and that upper level that has that little bit of more give. And yes, that can be true in many arenas, but you, know, you still have to look at each one individually okay. and see, you know, and it, it depends on how much rain there is, um, how much humidity is in the air that's evaporating the water from your ring. So, you know, I think even when you find the formula that kind of works, you have to be prepared to change it. When the weather changes, and so often, you know, the sprinklers just go off regardless at the same time every day. So, no, it, it's a constant battle keeping your footing good. Absolutely. So what you're saying is to really just uh, keep your eyes open about your footing and its yes. maintenance. That makes a lot of sense. And for, you know, that device you're talking about that they use that they use at Global mm -hmm. and WEF, um, is anything like that commercially available to people to do at home? I don't know if it's, I don't think it's commercially available, but there are people that travel. Okay. Do that. All right. So and there it, are It people. was developed okay. for racing surfaces by Dr. Mick Peterson, who at that time was at the University of Maine, and now he's at uh, University of Kentucky. Um, and he worked mostly on ra racing surfaces. And then Dr. Lars Ropstorff from Sweden um, Uppsala College there, he's um, adapted that for sport horses. Absolutely. And other things that people can do at home to safeguard their horse's soundness with their footing, something that's just jumping to mind, uh, would videoing um, in slow-mo uh, a few of their horses going through the footing, could that be helpful? Yeah, that can be very interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. So they could kind of get an understanding if there was some good slide and stop within the footing. Yes. Okay. Yes, I love looking at the slow-mo videos. You learn so much from them. Yeah, yeah, you really do. So we touched on the footing that is best, but I think um, one more thing I'd like to ask. You said horses like consistency. Um, but it does seem like there's a lot of uh, biomechanical and developmental value in having horses work across a lot of different kinds of footing um, to continue to develop their soft tissue structures. So yes. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, that um, it develops the soft tissues and the bones as well yeah. um, to be able to withstand forces in multiple directions. So when you don't have perfect footing, you know, or the horse takes a bad step, then he's better prepared to um, resist injury. So, but the thing to take away here is that we don't do that sort of work at speed. Mm, and you don't do... Okay, that was your, gonna be my yes, next question. You don't okay. do your technical training on inconsistent surfaces. 
You okay. do those on consistent surfaces that won't hurt the horse. And then you go out hacking whatever on inconsistent surfaces, but at slow speed. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I was going to ask because, you know, I, so I come from an eventing background. I'm a dressage mm-hmm. rider now. So if, as a dressage rider and my dressage horse, I would imagine that the only uh, soft tissue strengthening they would need, I think that I could achieve at the walk. My question a little bit is with the show jumpers, maybe less the show jumpers and more with the eventers, is there some validity to doing a little bit of different kinds of footing at higher speed because that's part of their job? Or would you say to kind of safeguard them and prevent injury, it's better to still do it at walk and maybe slow trot? So I think, you know, especially the eventers when they're going out and doing their trot sets and gallop sets. That's enough. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. And that's that footing hopefully is similar to what they'll meet in competition. Right. There's no need to seek out especially bad footing. To no, do some no, work. never. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I always wonder, you know, I know that if you don't use it, you lose it. So I've always wondered, like, if you work in just a little bit of bad footing sometimes, well, but, um, you know, it's, it's hard to know. Let's not call it bad footing. Let's okay. call it... Inconsistent. Um, yeah, or, or just different from different what they're used footing. to, right? That's the main because, thing. yes. Right. So there's... Um, so let's say I'm developing uh, kind of my work catalog for my dressage horse. Mm-hmm. It could it would be a good thing to um, after uh, before or after a ride a couple times a week go for a walk on grass and up and down a hill and then maybe go for a walk on a road that has a harder surface. Yes. All right. Yes. Um, I was going to say something and I forgot what I was going <laughs> to say. Oh, um, so many of our sport horses these days. The only surfaces they see are a perfectly manicured paddock and a perfectly manicured arena. And that's what we want to avoid. We want to make sure that they get you know, better and different stimulation than that. Because basically their tendons are going to be coddled if they only ever see yeah. perfectly groomed yeah, surfaces. Yeah, so the day they do step in a hole. Yeah, they're not prepared for that at all. No. Yeah, and they're going to do an injury. And... Th- um, something else I would say about I would not be riding on the roads um, and I have a friend who had a very serious accident riding on the roads and even with our helmets on the road is right. so hard right. so I, I, I mean I, I try to do especially with the barefoot horse they need to see these harder surfaces that load the entire ground surface of the foot but I do that just walking in hand rather than that makes sense riding them, yeah. or maybe I mean what I used to do is just walk up and down the driveway at the yeah. barn a bit yeah. um you know just out of me being lazy and not wanting to do no, the no, enhance that's, that's absolutely fine um you know I'm five, five ten minutes a day yeah that does enough feet. yeah yeah absolutely um All right. So I think that that's most of my questions about uh, joint locomotion, footing surface. Um, What else? Is there anything else you would like to add to that conversation? Oh, uh, now you put me on the spot. (laughs) Uh, No, ask me another question and Mm. then we'll get going on another topic. Mm. (laughs) In the meantime, let me just say that at the last Olympics, uh, horses in the Swedish show jumping team were barefoot and those horses train and they won yes so it is possible to do high level sport barefoot and I've trained 
horses to Grand Prix dressage barefoot. Um, people think that if you put shoes on, it gives them a little bit more swing phase expression. But you get that at the expense of a little more stress on the joints. Hmm. And also, um, they do lift the leg a little bit higher with a shoe because of the inertia from the weight of the shoe. But that's early in the swing phase. It's not at the moment when the horse is at his most expressive. So, you know, I'm not really convinced that you gain a whole lot in the performance arena from having shoes on. Absolutely. And do you have any advice? You know, I think that the easiest thing to do would to have a young horse and just never put shoes on. But do you have any advice for people who have middle to older age horses who may want to transition to barefoot? Yeah. First of all, find a really good barefoot trimmer. Okay. Be prepared to devote several months to it and be patient because some horses you can transition fairly quickly, but some require quite a few months to you know really for the hoof is like mm-hmm. any other tissue it right. gets stronger according to the type of work that it gets and when the shoes are removed it has to change shape the various structures like the frog change in their composition as well as their shape um, it's really fascinating i did a research study on that one time just using a barefoot trim Um, over a period of time and evaluating the horse's feet and the frog first of all got quite a lot larger but it was fairly soft sort of frog tissue and then over the next few months the frog actually got a little smaller but the tissue changed and became much more resilient so it would be effective in cushioning the foot the tissue of the frog yeah that's really interesting Mm. yeah that makes a lot of sense so um, I've heard that, um, so some people elect to do like hind shoes and then front shoes, like pull the hinds mm-hmm. and pull the fronts. Do you think that that might be, that might give a horse a better chance to catch up rather than taking off all four at once? Or do you think it might be worth just taking off all four? I would do all four at once. Oh, really? Because you know, there's going to be a period of perhaps months. Right. And if you do two and two, then it's months plus months. Whereas <laughs> if you do them all together. You know, and, and there are ways to protect the feet while they're transitioning. Such as? Um, Dr. Steve O'Grady uses is a sort of a wrapping technique. Okay. Rather than a boot, he wraps around the distal end of the foot so a little bit of like vet wrap or no it's a a special wrap and um he will have he has an article on that that's coming out very soon he has a very nice technique for um the entire hoof rehab that's oh, okay. Well, that's great. We can yeah. look forward to that. Yes. Um, and in terms of selecting a good barefoot trimmer, again, what we talked about earlier, word of mouth from an educated horse person who has yes. had good results. Absolutely. I know some people actually just go and become educated on their own. I've noticed um, I've had some friends and clients who might be in an area where they don't have great access to a barefoot trimmer. Yeah. So yeah. they actually just go and do the education themselves. Is Are there any schools that you recommend for doing something like no, that? No, there are two or three different ones. Um, and they all have merit, I think. Just okay. pick the one that 
that you you choose and stick with that one. And the more you know, the better you can do it all. Yeah. And you do have that option when your horse is, is barefoot. Yeah. Yeah, see, I, I know a few people have done that who have been very happy being able yeah. to do that. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I run a rasp over mine every couple of weeks, and that way you never get big changes in the hoof balance. And when I get the opportunity, then I have a professional take a look and you know, tell me what I'm doing right and wrong. That's awesome. Yeah. So you do your horses a bit. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. wow. Oh, that's amazing. Mm. Oh, that's so cool. I love that. How many horses do you have? Many. Uh, I think I have, I have three at the moment. You think you have three? <laughs> well, um, I, uh, the ones that have retired for one reason or another, I usually give away. And it's questionable whether they're still mine or they belong to the new owners. And they're all dressage horses? Yes. They're all pretty much all Lusitanos. Lusitanos. Oh, yes. That's very nice. Those are fun to ride. They are. Yeah. And I recently bought a pony. Oh, recently bought pony. A pony, yes. German riding or what? Uh, he's a North American sport pony. Okay, what does that mean? Because he came without any papers. Oh, okay. So and, he's in that. And they will, <laughs> you know, register them if they're the right size and type. Yeah, that's very nice. I love ponies. I think that my next horse, I want to be a pony because oh, they're just a naughty pony. <laughs> well, you know, my thing is as a body worker um, and seeing so many of my friends go through so many issues. None of my friends with issues are the ones with ponies. They just are so good at protecting themselves. They're so tough. They're so hardy. You know, it's just, it's so nice to see horses that just are not constantly at the vets costing you money. Yes. <laughs> and you know, there is, there is some underlying science to that. Oh, really? As a horse gets bigger, so as his body weight increases, it increases in a certain proportion to his height. But the strength of all the tissues that support that weight increase at a slower rate so the bigger and bigger the horse gets the bigger the discrepancy between the horse's body weight and the strength of the supporting tissues wow so you know ponies are the right size and i think horses up to 16 hands or so are are good also fine yeah but once you get above that you're starting to get a bit uh, close to what their bodies can actually um, sustain that makes a lot of yeah. sense. And another thing about ponies is that they're often um, built in a stronger way. They have big cannon bones, sturdy legs, wide loin, which is really important for weight bearing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I love, I love ponies. That's really interesting. Um, did you want to touch on what you did for equine welfare at the Olympics before we wrap up? Especially in other parts of the world, in Europe, there is this huge movement um, to make our sport more transparent and to retain our social license to operate. So the social license is not something you can go out and buy. It's something you have to earn by the sport, people in the sport behaving responsibly and looking after the health and safety and welfare of the horses. So there are a few few committees worldwide that are really working hard to make sure that the industry is aware of what needs to be done, how we need to get our house in order. Yeah, it seems like you have contributed a lot to uh, equine welfare through your research. 
Um, is there any, do you have any parting words? I mean, you've just done so many different interesting things. <laughs> um, you know, are there any things you'd like to see change about our sport, you know, backed up by your research on both kissing spine, necks and dressage horses? Um, well, you know, I really am a researcher at heart. Uh, but coming from a background as a veterinarian, it's not only researching performance to make performance better. It's how can we do that and still keep our horses sound. And so what might maximize performance may not maximize soundness. And to me, it's very important that we try to marry those two things together with our horses. I totally agree. I really wish that there were awards for people who, instead of necessarily had the highest result at the show, had the oldest and soundest horse at there the show. And, and, you know, like in endurance, they have best conditioned awards. Right. Yeah. Right. It would be really nice to see that in the Olympic sports. I would really love to see um, just more awards for uh, good horsemanship. Because I don't, it doesn't seem like it's always necessarily, um, it doesn't seem like we're always actually reprimanding the people with poor horsemanship. So if we could at least celebrate the people with good yes. horsemanship, I think that we would continue to move in the right direction. Good way to put it. And you know, the, the good thing about the social licensing debate is that people are listening to the research now. I think so. I, um... I think that with all the information available on the internet, I think that a lot of people really do want to do the right thing by their horse. It's just a matter of having access to learning what the right thing to do is for them. And I think you have been such a uh, spearhead in our industry and in our country um, to help people with that. Absolutely. So thank you so much for joining me. Do you have any last thoughts you'd like to add? Actually, I have one last question for you. Oh, yes. So I ask every everyone on the podcast this. What is one thing that you don't buck with? That I don't buck with? Yeah, that you don't buck with. The uh, title of the podcast is No Bucks Given. Oh. Yeah. Um, I don't know that it's that I don't agree with it, but... It's that there is limited ability to punish the people who are not treating their horses as they deserve to be treated. You know, we can regulate this on the showground, but once people go home, we really can't. Yeah. And I think it's up to each and every one of us to treat the horses fairly and well and to be knowledgeable about new developments, new research that can help us do that. Absolutely. That's perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's really been a pleasure. Oh, I've enjoyed it. That was a good conversation. (laughs) Equestrians, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of No Bucks Given. If you've enjoyed what you've learned today, please make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and tell us what you think by leaving a review. 